So, what Paul is making clear here in Romans 4, 18 through the end of that chapter is that that Abraham, the promise to Abraham was not grounded in Abraham's merit or his own righteousness or his own abilities. It was not a reward for Abraham's personal righteousness. It was um, a uh, gift of God that he would be the father of many nations um, and Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness because Abraham believed that God had the power very important the power to um, fulfill his promise and so we, un- we have that same faith the faith that we have and this is so good the faith that we have is the faith in God's power. Power to do what? Raise our Lord from the dead. Now the charismatics will say, well, you know, this is all about the power of God to give you, make you prosperous and uh, heal your body and, and overcome demons and all these things. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that the, the reference point for our understanding of the power of God and our faith, our hope is rested in the power of God to raise Jesus from the dead and that's important for the simple reason that the fact that Jesus' resurrection represents our guarantee of our own resurrection because Christ's resurrection was an eschatological event occurring in history. It was an end-day judgment, final judgment event that occurred in human history. And we are in him, and therefore our resurrection is as certain as Christ's bodily resurrection. See, this is why it's important for us to believe these things. We don't just believe in the bodily resurrection because that's a magical formula. I believe in the bodily resurrection, therefore I'm going to heaven. No, I believe in the bodily resurrection means that you believe that you too will be raised from the dead. That's your guarantee. That's where it comes home to become applicable to your own life. It's not just a, a doctrine about the resurrection of Jesus that we believe in an abstract way and therefore we're rewarded with heaven. It's a very practical application. Okay. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, chapter 5, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. The New American Standard says we celebrate our sufferings. (laughs) We celebrate our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. Proven character, by the way. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now let me ask you, does that sound like a life of defeat? Does that sound like worm theology? I mean, everything he just said there is that not only are we not just to walk around in a veil of tears with suffering as our lot in life, because we're just vile sinners struggling with sin, he's saying here that we celebrate in our sufferings. Our paradigm for living has been so transformed that we even find the ability to celebrate in our sufferings. Okay. So then he he says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, we were as powerless to save ourselves as Abraham was powerless to have children. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Paul is connecting there the, the, the words powerless and sinner. If you are sinner, you are powerless. If you are powerless, you are a sinner. If, to be a sinner is to be powerless. To save yourself. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So it's, it, he's saying there that salvation does not end with reconciliation. It is salvation goes into an ongoing, live-it-out experience. Not only is this so, but we also boast, celebrate glory in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure, sin was in the world because before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Adam was a pattern of Jesus, not the other way around. But the gift is not like the trespass. And he goes on to explain now that the, the trespass occurred, one trespass occurred, and all died. But even after many trespasses, the gift is not like the trespass because the gift was occurred after, the, after many trespasses. So, put it this way, there are not, there's not a, a limited number of trespasses that can occur that will then invalidate the gift. In Roman Catholic theology, you have an initial grace given at, at baptism until you commit a mortal sin, and that mortal sin will then kill the grace you were given at baptism, and then you have to go back to the uh, sacrament of penance to recapture that grace. So you're in and out of grace on an ongoing basis. Um, and you hope that you don't die in those moments when you're, you're not in a state of grace, because then you're off to purgatory at best or hell at worst. Uh, but what Paul is saying here is that there is no number of trespasses that will invalidate the gift of grace. No amount of trespasses. Adam sinned one sin and the whole race fell. He said, but the amazing thing is, is that the gift of reconciliation, of grace, is not like Adam's sin because it comes after many trespasses. In other words, there's not enough trespasses to invalidate the gift of grace and reconciliation. Very important. Because a lot of a lot of Protestants too run around struggling with the fact, well, you know, I've sinned since I was a Christian. I was sin even the early church fathers struggle with this question. Well, what if you're after baptism? What about sin after baptism? Uh, Tertullian even said that murder and adultery were unforgivable. He actually taught that. So the early Christians in the third century, fourth century, were being told that if you commit adultery or you commit a murder after after your baptism, you could not, you could not be forgiven. Mm-hmm. I mean, it took a while for them to work that out, but a lot of people suffered you can imagine, horribly. So the good news is here at the end, through the end of chapter 5, is just he's explaining that there is no number of trespasses that can invalidate grace. Where sin abound, what? Grace. Grace did more abound. That's the good news. Mm -hmm. So it only makes sense then, he opens chapter 6 with, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? That's the, that's the logical, luciferic criticism of that doctrine. Well, then we should just keep on sinning because it doesn't matter. Grace will always supersede sin. 
actually better to keep sinning because then there's more grace. Then there's more grace. Be like Luther. Sin boldly. Sin boldly. He said, let your sins be strong. Yeah. Yeah. That guy. Mm -hmm. But what did he say in verse 2? By no means in the emphatic in Greek, meaning by no means. No, no, no. No, no, no. We are those who have died to sin. How shall we live in it any longer? So if you're going to, this is the question that people keep asking, but guys like Mark, well, if I'm a Christian, why do I keep sinning? Because you're ignorant of who you are in Christ. Because you you don't realize you have no obligation to keep on sinning. Mm -hmm. If you're still being lured into sin, it's because you don't realize that you're, you're not, what did Abraham do? He trusted in what? The power of God to fulfill his promise. So now we trust and our faith is in the power of God to grant us life from the dead. And it's a life that is more powerful than sin. Yes. Hallelujah. Verse 3, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his what? Death. We were therefore buried with him, or as the King James says, planted with him through <laughs> baptism. <laughs> planted like a, a seed mm-hmm. uh, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now let me pause here to do just a moment of exegesis. You don't have to turn there. I will. Ephesians 1. Um, I can find it quickly. He says in Ephesians 1, um, 19, I'll start at 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul wants us to know what's going on. In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, to the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and in his incomparably great power for us who believe. That Power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So we're living, if we're in touch with reality, which most Christians are not, sadly, we are living by the power of Christ's resurrected life in us. It is not just a mental assent to a set of creeds and confessions. It is a power. Uh, the Christian life is a life of power. And in the power is about the resurrection. The reason we believe in the bodily resurrection is because we recognize that it took the power of God to raise Christ from the dead. And it is that same power that is at work in us. So our faith is tied to power. Resurrection power. He's saying so clearly here, that is the same power that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Is that work incomparably, he said, incomparably great power. Now, if it's incomparable, what does that mean? What does it mean to be incomparable? There's nothing like it. Boy, this is important. There's nothing else like it, including the power of sin. Boom. Boom. So instead of running around saying, oh, I just sin. I just have to sin all the time. I'm just a sinner. I know I'm saved by grace. It's a good thing I'm saved by grace because I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I do want to do. And you know, Paul said that. Paul said that that was how it is and that's a normal Christian life and you just struggle with sin all your life and then you die and go to heaven and it's all better then. 
There is not one thread of the New Testament that supports that argument. And yet, it is the common thought amongst the Christians. I'm happy to relieve us of that this morning. Okay. So he goes on again in verse chapter 6 to explain that we died in Christ. We've been raised with Christ. And that sin, if we look at verse 14, for sin shall no longer be your what? Master. Master. If we look at Romans seven fourteen through 24, that man who's struggling in that text is under the power of sin. He said, I've been born enslaved to sin. <coughs> but Paul is saying here, for sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, because, but under grace? By no means. The whole argument of the law people is that if we don't have law, we will have lawlessness. And Paul's saying twice now, what then? If we don't have law, will we have lawlessness? To paraphrase. And he's saying, no, by no means. Absolutely not. Unequivocally not. No. We don't have to go back to law to avoid lawlessness because there's another principle at work here, and that is the resurrection principle and power of the Spirit in our life. Okay. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart that pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Mm-hmm. And Jesus doesn't teach, don't do this. He says, do this. Yes, yeah, do this. You, you'll never be able to not do this by not doing this. <laughs> you'll never be able to stop doing this by simply saying, I'm not going to do that. It won't work. That's what Paul's point is in Romans 7. You have to do something different. You have to have a positive application. Now, he's saying here that, um, that, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you used to be slaves to sin, this is used to be slaves to sin, doesn't mean that you are now slaves to sin. And Paul says in between 7, 14 and 24, but I am under sin, sold to sin. He's clearly not talking about the normal Christian life because this is the normal Christian life. He just said it. Though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching. And this is my burden, is to, to communicate the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Paul's saying there's a pattern of teaching that has to do with law, sin, and the resurrection, and the power of the resurrection that, had, that we need to put our allegiance to. What we've instead lined our allegiance with is a form of teaching that is telling us that we are worms, that we are still sinners, that we are still under the law, that we still are bound to sin and we're going to sin, and that it's just a constant struggle. It's a form of teaching that says that the conflict between sin and death is still at work in our hearts and minds. But thanks be to God, we're saved by the grace of God through faith alone. So Jesus saves us regardless. Even though we're having this horrible struggle with sin on on an internal basis, God looks at us and he still sees us covered with a blanket of white snow that we call Jesus. And so he doesn't even see our struggle. That's, That's the Lutheran teaching. That's why I won't darken the door of a Lutheran church, because they have... They have no gospel. Let me put it this way. The gospel of justification by faith alone, as is defined by Luther, is no gospel. Mm -hmm. Period. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't work out in our lives in a way that, that helps us overcome sin, and so that we're not obligated to sin, 
We're actually instead walking by the Spirit. Then there's no gospel. That's why I don't identify as a Protestant, let alone a Lutheran. And that's why you can get into fellowship with Lutherans, and ultimately, they won't have anything to offer Mm -hmm. except this veil of tears. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So he goes on to say in chapter 6, he uses examples that you were either under the control of sin, which led to death, or you're under the control of righteousness. But now, verse 22, now that you've been set free from sin, does he think he really means that? What if this is true? He wouldn't say it if he didn't mean it. <laughs> he wouldn't say it if he didn't mean it. Do you, do you think, as Jerry Cook used to say, what if this is true? But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Mm-hmm. And then he has this wonderful section now that should put the argument to, to down for, for here on in. As long as it is read in context. As long as, there is, as, long as it's read in context. And men like Chris Roseborough, he's constantly saying on his YouTube channel, you remember the three, the, the three rules of exegesis, context, context, and context. And then when he teaches that Romans 7 is the normal Christian life, he's not even applying his own rule. He's a hypocrite. His charismatic heretics that he points out and he exposes are liars. He's right, they're liars. But Chris is a hypocrite. I don't want to be a liar or a hypocrite. No. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, seven one? For I am speaking to those who know the law. Who am I speaking to? Who, who is he speaking to? Who know the law? Do Gentiles know the law? No. Do Greeks? Do Romans? Pagans? No. no. Do the pagans in Britannia at this time of human history know the law? No, they were the Druids. They were, they were caught up in what we would call the New Age today. No. So he's speaking to Jews. That the law has authority over someone only as long as the person lives. He's speaking to Jewish Christians here who were separating from Gentile Christians in Rome and forming a separate community. And Paul heard about this and said, What are you doing? You are together a new humanity, a new creation. There is one gospel for one people, and you can't separate out on the basis of ethnic and religious heritage. Mm-hmm. So, so the, there's a long history to that, including Caesar kicking the Jews out of Rome so that the church then became primarily Gentile by default. So that when the new Caesar came along and said, okay, Jews, you can come back, the Jews came back and found a, the Jewish Christians came back and found a predominantly Gentile church and didn't feel welcome, didn't feel parked. Because there was still a lot of Roman disdain for Jews, even in the church, sadly. And so the Jewish Christians who returned to Rome after being exiled came back because he did. When Caesar kicked out the Jews, he didn't say, but if you're a Jewish Christian, you can stay. He just said, no, if you're a Jewish heritage, you're out of here. Mm -hmm. So the Jews left and the Jewish Christians had to leave. Mm -hmm. So when the Jewish Christians were allowed to come back, they found a predominantly Gentile church, didn't feel welcome, didn't feel felt in conflict, so, they started their own church. They, they, began this, they, they began a community, a Christian community of Jews. Mm-hmm. Now, Are those, would those be the first generation of Messianic Jews? The first generation of Messianic Jews. The first generation of Hebrews' roots movements. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so, 
Paul hears about this, and instead of saying, oh, you know, that's so powerful that they have become Messianic Jews, they're completed Jews. They're fulfilling Yahshua, Yeshua, the Messiah. Ah, ha, ha. I bet they, I bet they do Jewish dances on Saturday, and oh, I bet they celebrate the feasts, and and they probably keep the Sabbath too. Isn't that cool? I bet they have prayer shawls, and uh, it's just great to be a, a completed. No, Paul was horrified. As well, he should be at the news that there was two separate communities in Rome, Gentile division based upon Jewish and ethnic heritage or Gentile heritage. And so Paul is writing the whole letter to the Romans that Christians for 2,000 years have rejoiced and cherished this letter as being so one of the most important letters in the New Testament, if not the most important as being a celebration of justification by faith alone. And the only reason that Paul is even talking about justification by faith is to help Jews realize that um, they are not any advantage over Gentiles inherently, that they are equally disadvantaged by sin with Gentiles, and they are equally advantaged in Christ uh, with Gentiles, and that there is no longer any Jew or Gentile in salvation. There's not two plans. There's not two ethnic communities. There's one new race in Christ. He is, through the cross, he has broken down the walls of separation, it says in Ephesians chapter 2. And so he's nailed the law of ordinances to the cross so that there's one new humanity. Jesus, let me put it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, We no longer recognize Jesus according to the flesh, though we once did. In other words, we no longer recognize Jesus as a Jew. We recognize his resurrection state as a, the firstborn of a new humanity. I could say Jesus is no longer a Jew, and people would, have, people would go nuts over me saying that. Because, but the fact is, Paul makes it clear that he is no longer a Jew or a Gentile issue. It is Jesus is a new, has a new glorified body that is neither Jew nor Gentile. It is a new human race that is no longer neither Jew or Gentile. It is a new human race. I don't know what we call it other than a children of God. And that's Paul's point. Don't go back. Don't turn Christianity into just another Jewish sect that excludes Gentiles. So the Jews in Rome are saying, you know, fine. We're the people of God anyway. Mm-hmm. So you Gentiles are just add-ons. Right. You're, you're just, you're this, we're just throwing you crumbs from the table. So, yeah, so go ahead and set up your second-rate Christianity. And- yeah. Okay, so that is all brought about by the fact that Paul says that though I'm speaking to those who know the law. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. That's Jewish law. Mm-hmm. So then, if he has sexual relations with another man, a man, or she does, while her husband is still alive, she is called a what? An adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So Paul is making it very clear here that there's an analogy at work here. He's not teaching about law, marriage, and divorce. Verse 4, So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. I mentioned to the, I think this to you yesterday, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God just as a couple bears fruit for God and having children. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. Everybody's bearing fruit. The question is, is it fruit for God or fruit for death? But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. 
if you don't have that underlined in our Bibles, do it now. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So there's a new way and there's an old way. And the two ought not be convoluted. Jesus said in, in Luke, we should not put new wine into old wineskins. Why? Because if you do, you'll burst the wineskins. New wine needs to go into new wineskins. There's an old way and there's a new way. In Hebrews, he says, there's, we have a new and living way. As opposed to what? The old way, which is under the old covenant. In 2 Corinthians 3, he says, um, we have been made competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter does what? Kills. But the spirit does what? Gives life. So the New Testament is so vividly clear that there's an old way and there's a new way. And the law is under the old way. So when a pastor gets up and says you have to keep Sunday as the Sabbath to, to maintain the moral law, the Ten Commandments, you have to tithe under or be under the curse of Malachi. They're convoluting the old way and the new way. They're bringing the two things together, which the New Testament does, and it's a backdoor denial of the sufficiency of the atonement of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Though they would be loathed to admit that. I know. Okay. So then we read earlier uh, the law of sin, and so the struggle with sin that people t- talk about so much that they think they have. And as I do not do what I want to do, and what I do, I do not do, and so on and so on. Um, <clears throat> so he finds this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Verse 22 of 7, For my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So if we are still a prisoner at the, uh, of the law of sin within me, then we are no, we are not Christians, right? And we should cry out, "What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of this that is subject to death? Who will rescue me?" Remember, the analogy here is the old Roman penal system. If you c- kill someone, they take the body of the man that they, you killed and tie him face to face with you wrap the rope around you, throw you into a prison cell, and you lay there staring the man that you killed in the face, face to face. Paul may have even seen that happen before he wrote this. He may have even seen in prisons that there were men laying in prison cells with a corpse laying face to face with it, wrapped in cords and unable to get free. Laying there with a rotting, stinking corpse of the person you killed. And so the question then is this. Does that define the normal Christian life? To have a rotting, stinking corpse lying face to face with you? There are those who will tell you that that is. And what Paul is saying here, who will free, if you're in that state, if you have, if you are there, if you're laying on a damp, Roman prison cell with a corpse tied to you face to face. Imagine it's beyond comprehension what that was like. Mm-hmm. It only makes sense then that you're going to cry out, Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have been delivered from that rotting corpse. We would probably be very grateful if somebody came into our prison cell, cut the ropes, took the corpse, and went and did something with it, took it away from us. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, what's the therefore? Therefore, because Christ has set us free, there is now no more eschatological condemnation. We need not fear condemnation. The same condemnation that put us tied a corpse to our face and death 
Death is condemnation, and condemnation is death. We don't need to fear that any longer. We don't need to fear that our existence is going to end up on a, on a day of judgment being declared guilty, wicked, sinner. You are now dead for eternity. We don't have to fear that. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of spirit of life who gives life, law of the spirit who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. <clears throat> for what the law was what? powerless to do. Remember, we need power, resurrection power, mm -hmm. because it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own sin, son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law, so we're not talking about lawlessness here, so that the requir righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How are we doing? Doing okay? Yeah. Okay. I know this is a lot, but it's, it's you have to dig. You have to dig like this, yeah. And so he condemns sin in the flesh. Now this is a profound statement he just made. There's only one other point, place, well, there is another in Romans, but... But who is the first one to say, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it? Jesus, in, in Matthew 5. Think not that I have come to destroy the law. I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Mm -hmm. So Jesus fulfilled the law in his lifetime. Perfectly. And now, if you can handle it, if you're, if you're too devoted to your worm theology where you can't handle this, you probably shouldn't even hear it. Just stop up your ears right now. But and if you are open to the good news of the gospel, listen to what he says. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. I, I think a better translation would be fulfilled in us. Think of that fulfilled in us. And then later in Romans 13, I think it is, he says uh, to make sure that we love because love let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has what? Fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be is, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. We have been set free, raised from the dead, in order that we can become those who love. One word so complicated, yeah. Okay, so we're almost done. <clears throat> and now he wants to teach us how to live. He has to say the indicative is that we've been raised from the dead through the spirit of life, those who live according to the flesh. In other words, those who are not Christians, verse 5, have their minds set on what this flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit, in other words, Christians, have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Is your mind set on what the Spirit desires? That's the question. That's what he's saying here is indicative you. The real you has your mind set on the, what the Spirit desires. We want to do what the Spirit wants. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to walk around figure stuff out. Mm -hmm. Verse 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. That's why theology is my counseling paradigm, not psychology. Mm -hmm. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. That's not a, a Christian mind. It is, does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. That is not God's law. That's everything he just said in Romans seven fourteen. Mm -hmm. He's just saying... Romans 8, 7 is, he's reiterating what he's just said in Romans 7. 
Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, you, however, who? Christians are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Now let me, now let me just say very importantly, everything we said up to this point, everything that I've, we've been talking in the last 40 minutes, Paul has been making the case, building the case, like a good attorney in a courtroom, for this very point. This is the climax of his teaching. He's saying, everything I've said up until now comes to this point, and that is the spirit, you are in the realm of the spirit. But if Christ is in you, uh, excuse me, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. I don't care how much of the law they have, Paul said. I don't care what kind of membership they have in the church or whatever. If they do not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. So our body, we still have this body that is subject to death. We will die. But our spirit is alive because of righteousness. We have new life at work in us. One day we will have a new body as well. And if the spirit of him who what? Raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead, as I said earlier, will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. How are we doing? We're coming to the end here. So, Okay, so then in verse 12, through the end of the chapter, becomes the imperatives. Therefore, because of everything I've said, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's the way of the sinner. But if the, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. How do you do that? What does it mean if you, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live? Now, it doesn't mean you walk around looking to mortify sin. That's That's been the big deal, too. John Owens in his book, The Mortification of Sin. I understand where he's coming from. I understand that they're trying to give you practical examples of how to mortify sin in your body. But the easy path is this. The simple path is this. He's saying, walk by the Spirit, and you'll put to death the deeds of the body. It'll just happen. Mm -hmm. If you're walking by the Spirit, the, the deeds of the body will dry up like bad fruit on a tree and fall off. Don't give it any attention. Don't give it any life. And you don't do that. It's like having a bad thought. You have a bad thought, and people say, then quit thinking that thought. But you can't. That bad thought's there. I can't just quit thinking it. I have to replace it with a positive thought, a good thought. And it's the same thing. You replace your propensity to sin, your propensity to the deeds of the flesh, misdeeds of the body, with walking in the Spirit. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5.16, Therefore, Walk, I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Period. So this is all about, the whole Christian life is about walking by the flesh. And the reason the Lutherans and others teach this doctrine that somehow life is just a veil of tears and we're struggling with sin constantly is because they have failed to recognize the role of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. Now, do Christians stumble? Yes. Will Christians struggle? Yes. But it isn't the rule. It is the exception. It isn't the normal Christian life. Okay. 
For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. How do you know if you're a child of God? Because you're being led by the Spirit. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Fear of what? Fear of the law. Fear of condemnation. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That's every Christian's birthright. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. How do we know that we're God's children? Because we keep the law? No. Because we go to church? No. Because we read our Bibles? Not even that. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So we're not, we're in a work of process, progress, we're not there yet. We are now and not yet. <clears throat> All of creation is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God, uh, the children of God. There uh, is groaning, all creation is groaning, he says in, in the coming verses. We have hope, in this hope that we're saved, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We are groaning, there are times of groaning, we wake up going, ah, and where we go through the day, we might sigh, and we may feel the burden of our unredeemed bodies, mm-hmm. and we may wonder why we have how much longer we have to drag these things around. But it doesn't mean that we're subject to sin. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that we're slaves to sin. And we do have that. We hope. He says, "But the hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently." That's the prescription for the Christian life, to wait for our full redemption patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through words, wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. <clears throat> and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Paul's building a great pinnacle of um, victory here. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's what's at work in us now, in verse 29, 8, 29. That he might be the firstborn among brothers, many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That's all in the past tense. Mm-hmm. because So this defines to who you really are. You are a uh, uh, foreknown, predestined, being conformed to the image of his Son. Um, you're predestined, you're called, you're justified, and you're glorified already. God already sees you as glorified. Think of that. Amazing. That's why he says, be who you really are Mm -hmm. to the Corinthians. Stop being who you once were. Stop behaving like you're the old pagans you once were. Mm -hmm. Start living according to the new reality. Um, As Gordon Fee said, when we, conversion is really a matter of embracing reality. When we are converted, we go from the, the, the delusion of who we thought we were in Adam mm-hmm. to the new reality, the great reality of who we truly are in Christ. <clears throat> and then he makes this, this final big conclusion. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Sin, flesh, devil, world? Nope. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. If it's God who justifies, who can bring a charge, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody. Mm -hmm. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ who died, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. With his intercession is more powerful than anybody who can condemn us. Mm -hmm. Including our own minds. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written? For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But even then, it's okay. Like Gordon Fee said in his lecture, you may die, but since when does that matter? You've been dead for a long time. Verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, life gets too big for some people. But he's saying not even life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The point being, we are not slaves to sin. We are not obligated to sin. We are no longer under law. We are under grace. We are no longer in the realm of the flesh. We are in the realm of the Spirit. And those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. So Paul has just made a magnificent case. Mm -hmm. It's like you and I just sat through a courtroom scene Mm -hmm. where the attorney came in and made this magnificent case mm-hmm. for the fact that we are no longer, we are not, we're, the defense attorney came in and said, mm-hmm. we are not under sin. We're not obligated, Your Honor. These people are not obligated to sin. Mm-hmm. They're not in these realms anymore. They're in the realm of the, they're under grace, in the realm of the Spirit. And therefore, who can bring any condemnation? Who can bring any accusation? Well, I'm using that parallel. What most people do is they stick their head in the door for 20 seconds and then leave and think they got it. Right. What you and I just did is the level of time and discipline that's required if you're going to understand these things. The alternative is to go through life as a Christian thinking things that aren't true. The Christian struggle I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do, and oh, it's terrible, and it's horrible. Uh, That's not the normal Christian life, Paul said. The normal Christian life is what? To walk in the Spirit, and it's life and peace. Amen? Amen.